Hey folks, welcome to the AABIP podcast. This is Samir Avasarala from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm your host for today's episode. Thank you for joining us. It'll be an excellent discussion about a topic that has wide practice variability, post-airway stenting management. Today, we are very fortunate to have Dr. Jose de Cardenas, also known as Pepe. Pepe is an associate professor of medicine and thoracic surgery at the University of Michigan and the director of their interventional pulmonology program. Welcome, Pepe. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to, to talk to you guys about this. Excellent. Pepe, do you have any relevant conflicts of interest to disclose? Um, not related to this topic. As a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are those of the speaker in mind and not necessarily endorsed by the AABIP. With the formalities done, let's get started. So, Airway stenting is one of the most satisfying procedures that we do as interventional pulmonologists. In the right patient, it's a pathway for immediate relief of their dyspnea. As exciting as stenting is, post-stenting management is very, very important. And we all know that practice patterns vary significantly. It's important to know what people are doing out there. So, Pepe, what is your typical post-stent management plan? So, uh, I think that when we talk or even before considering post-state management, uh, we have to talk about the pre-management. And that starts basically with, as you said, the correct uh, patient selection, also discussing uh, what are the goals of the stand, and Mm -hmm. also ensuring that you're going to have a good regimen and a plan for follow-up, because no matter how much you can think about um, a post-stent management, if you don't discuss that with the patient, right, that's not going to happen. So um, so my usual my usual um, modus operandi for all our group here is that if a stent is deployed, right, we obviously discuss that with the patient goals and follow up. But once we deploy it intraoperatively, we communicate immediately with medical and radiation oncology to ensure that the patient um, gets um, the treatment that he or she requires. So this is very important, especially if the patient is naive to therapy or also if there is uh, to evaluate if there is any other new regimen for chemo radiation that the patient might uh, require. Um, I consider the majority of our stents are bridge to therapy, mm-hmm. right? And being therapy, either surgery, um, sur- surgery radiation or, um, or chemotherapy. And um, after that is established, and again, we have a really good communication with our colleagues, um, uh, we set up a follow-up in clinic, in the outpatient clinic, with uh, usually a CAT scan uh, that most of the time is without contrast. And then in, during that visit, right, we ask ourselves, is the stand still needed, right? And um, does it have any complications related to the stand, right? Sure. And if so... Um, we usually, depending, again, this is a discussion with the patient, we perform also in the majority of cases um, bronchoscopies to review those stents at one month. And if everything is fine, we repeat that two months after, meaning a three months after the stent has been deployed, and then another one at six months and then one year, right? Um, we, I think that the preoperative or the pre-management is super important because we also take advantage of this um, um, timing before going into the procedure because we would like to set up and teach the patient um, not only about the importance of follow-up, but also ensuring that he has all the resources necessary to avoid complications, right? So we have 
For example, in our program, we have a clinical specialist who is our respiratory therapist who ensures that the patient knows how to use the nebulizers, the flutter mm -hmm. valve, right, and all those drugs. So it's a good setup. That's excellent, Pepe. I think you've really emphasize two important points in interventional pulmonary, especially when it comes to uh, stenting. One of them is, uh, especially in malignant disease, uh, generally the stents we play should be viewed as something that's bridging to actual therapy for the cancer is done, whether that's radiation, chemo, uh, in rare instances, surgery, or a combination of the others. And, and also um, emphasize that us taking care of patients in the setting of stenting, um, you, you also mentioned communication with your radiation oncologist and oncologist about it's, it's a very deep-centered approach to make sure the patient has the best outcome. What, um, what medications uh, do you kind of tell your patients to use after a stent's placed? So we have, um, we um, initially during fellowship, um, we, we, I learned, and I think the majority of us learned to use a combination between um, um, mucolytics, mucokinetics, right, and expectorants. But mm -hmm. um, um, there was a nice study many years ago um, by a fellow in Boston called, uh, his last name was Odell. That was, I think, an abstract in 2010 that showed that um, Patients with a stent, airway stent regimen who had the airway stent regimen um, started right after the stent had 9% of complications. The majority of them were mucus plugging, right? And those who did not have had 40% of mucus plugging, which is a lot. It's four times, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that highlights the importance of airway stent regimen, right? And um, even before going into the medications that you can use, um, I think it's very important, and this is very simple to remember, right? Um, there is, um, I don't know if you have heard about the, the bottle of ketchup uh, paradox, which actually resembles uh, the importance of the mucus volume and the cough effect effectiveness, right? So um, the ketchup bottle um, is easier to emptier if actually with just a palm slap if you have a big amount of ketchup. And it's very difficult to, to, um, to get the ketchup out if you have just a little bit. So, and that means that you really want to have a lot of volume of mucus. You want to have a very hydrated mucus and as well as very thin. And that can be achieved with basically four main classes of mucoactive drugs, right? The first one is expectorants. The other one is mucolytics, so meaning those that decrease mucus viscosity. Um, mucokinetics, so uh, medications that can increase the ciliary bead frequency of mucus regulators. Mm -hmm. um, I think that key, uh, we did a lot of trial using 3% or even normal regular normal saline sure. during fellowship. But I think one of the key um, components of our stent regimen is albuterol. And, and not only because um, there is a lot of papers, and I think the most uh, great, the greatest review I think about veragonis um, and mucus is actually uh, published by uh, Dr. Salafi in 2002, um, which is available in PubMed. But albuterol does not only increases the ciliary bead frequency, but also hydrates the mucus because it affects ion transport channels. So you have more water in the airway that is going to increase the volume. And also uh, does not only have these two effects, also reduces the damage that um, 
you can have during infection and potentiate secretions of certain cytokines. And all this is described in this nice paper that actually uh, decreases inflammation, right? I think the other component that we use, which I use it routinely as well, so is wifenesine. Mm -hmm. And um, wifenesine uh, is going to increase the hydration of the mucus that you have and it's going to decrease the viscosity. So it's going to basically reduce the experience surface tension, um, and it's going to increase the mucosillary clearance. There is a nice paper again in 2019 by Dr. Ohan. And um, eye reserves, so those are usually albuterol, uh, usually nebulizers, no uh, the pump, no MBIs. Sure. And albuterol, I put it basically around uh, twice, a, twice a day, uh, standing fashion, uh, as well as wifenesin. Uh, 1,200 milligrams POBID, right? I usually reserve um, N-acetylcysteine, and I use N-acetylcysteine um, 20% 5 mLs, also as nebulizer. And just remember that um, N-acetylcysteine can produce sometimes bronchoconstriction. So it's important that the patient and their family members remember that you have to use the albuterol followed by the N-acetylcysteine immediately and then at the flutter valve. N-acetylcysteine is a very um, interesting drug because uh, it's not gonna, not only gonna dissociate or sorry, make it thinner the mucus, but also it has been associated with a reduction of airway bacterial load, right? Uh, and apparently it's because it, it reduces the the ability of the bacteria to adhere to epithelial cells. Okay. And again, this is to be defined if this has some value in airway stenting, but um, potentially it could reduce the um, stent colonization that you might have. Um, Flutter valve are very important, right? So that also is part of our regimen. And I tend not to use saline 3%, right? Because it only increases by um, uh, increasing the amount of um, volume of the mucus, but it doesn't have any other effects. We tried before, but um, we saw more complications, although this is anecdotal. Sure. So, Pepe, just for my, myself and our listeners, just to make sure that I got this correctly, it's, it seems it's a four-prong approach with albuterol, uh, NAC, and mm-hmm. you're going to use mucinex and a flutter valve. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Okay, great. So, my, my assumption is the answer is no, but do you modify your plan based on the, the type of stent you place? Um I, I I tend to be more aggressive with um, bonus stents, actually, because uh, in terms of not only with the regimen, but also in terms of a follow-up. Um, and the reason is because, I mean, I don't have, I love bonus stents. I think they have a, a very important role, but I think they tend to be a short-term uh, um, stents for us or an emergency stents, right? Because of the, the issues of fractures and growth of the tumor. Um, so I tend to bring them earlier, um, or try making sure that I don't miss them or those patients don't miss the, the follow-up. Um, and also I'm very, um, um, OCD when I have patients who have a marked inflammatory airway response. So for example, those patients with post-intubation tracheal stenosis or subglotic stenosis that you put an extent, you know, that it's going to granulate, Right. I want to bring them a four weeks bronchoscopy for sure, right? Or even two weeks after, 
right? And um, making sure sometimes I increase the albuterol and um, the, uh, the other nebulizers as well uh, to uh, three times a day, right? Um, I usually reserve because of the um, um, inability. There is, has been a shortage of N-acetylcysteine. I tend to limit that to um, as a last resort. So only when the patient needs it, I usually start just with albuterol, um, al albuterol and um, wifenesine, right, with the flutter valve. And then if the patient has any problem, I add NAC. Got it. So it sounds like it's a bit of a, a step-up therapy if you would have yes. to. Is that correct? Okay. That That is correct. Okay. So, and I think, Pepe, you mentioned something that I, I want to talk to you about, about bringing patients back post-stenting for you know, a bronchoscopy, whether they're feeling great or whether they're expressing some sort of symptoms. What is your general thoughts of post-stenting four-week, six-week bronchoscopy? Is it something you're doing standard for everyone or a certain selection of patients? Or are you depending yeah. on their CT so, scan? Um, I think it has a, a, a very important role. So there is a nice paper that I think the majority of us are very familiar, um, published by the by Dr. Hansley mm -hmm. um, in the Journal of Thoracic Disease in 2017. So that showed that actually the majority of patients uh, were not symptomatic at all when they had the stent complications. And there was no association with the indication of the stenting or the location of the stent with complications. And it was overall safe, right? So what I, I don't bring the patient to look and do a bronch immediately, right? But I bring the patient in clinic first to examine them, to discuss with the patient, and overall see the the whole case, how the patient is doing, right? So I it will be, I think, absurd to bring a patient for a bronchoscopy when they're on hospice, right? If they are not responding to therapy and they have worsening performance status, uh, right? And if there is no evidence of CAT scan or there is at all no airways of symptoms or, or there is no response to treatment, right? You know that you have to discuss does a bronchoscopy is really needed or not, right? So if the patient is having any complication, is able to tolerate the procedure, right? Um, so I think it's a discussion. I It's not, um, I think, cut and paste or approach, right? It has to be decided, but in the majority of our cases, we bring them for bronchoscopy and um, again, it depends on each patient. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's rare that a, a one-size-fits-all approach yeah. is applicable to our world. Um, so I, I always view airway scenting as an excellent example of, of a mix of art and science. Uh, you know, keeping this in mind, how did you come up with your post-stent management plan? Is it, is it something that you, you learned in fellowship and you stuck with it or you modified it as you kind of built your own career? Yeah, I think... Um, I, I think I was initiated on this by, by my mentors um, in Boston. Um, but even then, we were um, we were challenged because the the data all there for um, airway stenting management is at best very ambiguous, mm -hmm. right? So we we did trials of internal trials with normal saline, with three percent, right, um, with albuterol, and we noticed that albuterol. Um, uh, anecdotically work best. And it's not only because it's going to 
Um, again, the albuterol nebulization is going to hydrate the stent. But again, remember that the majority of our patients also suffer of COPD or asthma, or they don't have um, really good um, uh, pulmonary function or pulmonary parenchyma reserve, right? So I think it helps, right? Um, so we started with albuterol. Um, I remember um, um, my mentor, Dr. Majid, we were using a, a smaller doses of wifenesine. So we ramp it up to the max dose allowed, which is 2,400 milligrams um, once a day. So we are using, using just routinely 1,200 milligrams. Okay. Right? And I think that the flutter valve is super important. And I think this is key because, again, no matter how much mucus you're going to produce or how much you're going to have, if you don't, it's sometimes getting, uh, sorry, it's going to be very thick sometimes. So you need um, some help to mobilize it. And the funny thing is that some patients, uh, I mean, you know that our patients are very uh, familiar in the majority of cases, especially if they have undergone surgery before with incentive spirometry. So knowing the devices, right, um, is very important. They're going to say, oh, yes, I'm doing my flutter valve. And actually, they're not doing the flutter valve. Sure. They're using the incentive spirometry instead, which is not going to help. You know, it will prevent a telectasis, but um, you need to cough them up in um Debilitated patients or patients who are in the ICU, um, we use chest vest, right? And um, what I do as well to avoid migration, and I think this is a common practice for um, um, among all of us, although we haven't studied it yet, is that I tend to dilate my stents immediately after um, deployment. Yeah. Right. So. Ensuring that they're not going, they're very well tucked, tucked in within the airways. So the migrations that um, um, I have, I have had in the last seven, eight years are, I think maybe I can one or two, right? Um, but that that helps also a lot. Excellent. So Pepe, one of the questions I always ask myself when. I'm doing a bronchoscopy on a patient and I know a stent is needed is when I'm placing the stent, one of the questions that's always in the back of my head is when can I get the stent out? Because mm -hmm. I think that's very important to kind of plan ahead or at least have some sort of thought process about what does the patient need next about that would affect when I can get this out. So what do you keep in mind when deciding when a stent can come out? Yeah. So I think that, um, uh, the the main indicator, right, um, is um, there, th there are going to be three things that you're going to be thinking. It has the patient responded to the oncological treatment, right? So because, again, if there is a big mass uh, um, producing um, external compression, yes, the stand is needed still, right? And you might need to you might need to change it sooner if, for example, it's a bonus stand, mm -hmm. right? Um, the other thing that um, so the response of the oncological treatment great. So if the patient has responded completely, right? Yeah, you don't need it. We're gonna remove it, right? Um, then the other question that I am also asking, and again, this is important, and and this is something addressed in the outpatient visits, is asking the patient. Are you having any complications related to the stent, right? So there are patients who are gonna not gonna be able to tolerate the stent at all, right? Um, especially those with TBM, right? There are right. gonna be some patients who have 
granulation tissue, then you need to change them, right? There are going to be patients who have cancer and they're going to have infections. So if they're having complications, yeah, we might need it or you might require, again, um, what we quote, especially for benign disease, this is what I do, uh, uh, stent vacation, right? And um, <clears throat> when I also, uh, one, I think that one of the most important factors is also can the patient tolerate the procedure for removal, right? Sure. And this is, um, and, and I think the timing is also super, super relevant because um, I have had some cases where we are all eager to remove the stent and the patient is doing fine and she just completed radiation, right? And um, if you're, you will find that once the patient has had radiation, and again, this is anecdotal, if you remove it uh, within the week after finishing radiation, everything is going to be very friable, right? So I, I let it cool down. And I don't know, I let it cool down for around two or three weeks after radiation finishing, uh, after sure. finishing radiation uh, in order to avoid um, that uh, problems with hemoptysis as well. So within the last, what's going on the years now, we've had the unique experience of uh, working our way through this COVID-19 pandemic with a lot of supply chain shortages, et cetera. You know, so in this era of drug and medical equipment shortages, and, and you briefly talked about this earlier, did you have any backup plans to resort for post-stent management if, if your typical regimen is, is out of stock or on back order? So one of the good things is um, <laughs> that our stent regimen is um, what we call the three Bs in Spanish, bueno, bonito, and barato. So meaning they are good, they are bonito, so meaning they are very easily accessible and they're very cheap. Right. So, <laughs> so, bueno, bonito, and barato. So, um, uh, and albuterol is, you're not going to find a shortage of albuterol or um, wifenesine, uh, um, neither flutter valves, and you can buy those in Amazon. However, what we have had issues is actually with n acetylcysteine, right? Mm -hmm. And n cysteine, I'm like very, um, very impressed by it, uh, its effectiveness. Um, you will not find the in the majority of cases that being distributed or um, in in your regular local pharmacy. But in you are working any institution, they usually they mostly will have it, right? But sometimes still we run uh, we are short of that. So what we do is tend to uh, if the patient really needs it, we give it to to them, or we know that the patient has. Is going to produce a lot of mucus. We ensure that they have it before they're being discharged, right? Um, so we tend to do that. Uh, we're, I'm, le I'm, um, I'm a little bit, um, I think the majority of us are, um, um, we're very OCD in terms of before the patient being discharged with the sure. stand, ensuring that they have absolutely all the resources, all the equipment, right, that they have been taught and also follow up. Um, I think that that's critical. And I think that we start also with um, with this, in, in this era of um, shortages, right? It's like, do you really need to put an stand, right? Can Is this a patient with a small cell that in one week or 10 days, if they start therapy, mm -hmm. it can be resolved, right? So I think that's, um, that's very important. So you can avoid putting an stand, amazing, right? But if you have to buy the bullet, then you have to. Do uh, do your patients go home with some sort of stent card or stent bracelet or anything like that? Uh, no, actually, 
but uh, we have um, our team that calls the patient the next day, right? And um, we basically, they have full access to our um, team. We don't send them with cards except when they are, for example, um, um, because the majority of, of them stay here in our institution, mm-hmm. um, except though when they go with uh, large stents, with wide silicone stents or high tracheal stents. Sure. I think that um, in those cases it's super important in case that they they ended up and they end up in the emergency uh, requiring an intubation. I think it's critical to put the um, a note there, right? How this patient can his airway can be accessed or her airway can be accessed. Um, we usually print the reports, right? So um, of those patients. Um, so the patients actually have pictures of their stents. So uh, we like to document a lot with pictures. And that's basically how they, they are discharged. Um, and again, the follow-up, we have them, we bug them a lot to ensure that they are not missed, right? Or they're not lost in our system. Yeah, it sounds like a very pragmatic approach. Uh, so time for closing remarks. Anything we left out that you feel is important to discuss? Um, yeah, I think uh, uh, one of our colleagues who is joining us um, soon in this uh, July 2023, Max Wayne, um, did um, um, a survey uh, among thoracic surgeons and IP. And basically, yeah, as you mentioned, right, there is a lot of there is a lot of um, variety of how we treat um, stents. Um, around three quarter uh, prescribe at least of one medication of more than 140 patients, right? And only half of them perform routinely bronchoscopy, even in asymptomatic patients. So I think this paper is going to show us that, again, the variety that we have in airway stent regimen and maybe uh, shed some light on how we can improve or even put some uh, background in order for us to really design a multi-center study. Um, so, and just to close up, right, I, I think that uh, when you care for patients, I think that also implies that you care for the stand that you place, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to wise, you, cho- you have to choose wise when it's needed, right? You have to uh, build a support system for your patient, right? And, and it's follow-up. And I think that, again, although there is not a lot of data that support airway stand regimen, um, there is uh, a lot of um, regimens that we can use extrapolating the data from CF patients, patients with bronchiectasis that can help us to um, to manage those patients and avoid, avoid complications. Yeah, I, uh, I look forward to reading that paper with uh, the results that Max is going to put out there. Uh, very important questions. I remember taking the survey uh, some months ago, so uh, eagerly anticipating those results to be out. Um, yep. Uh, Pepe, I I really appreciate your time. Myself and our listeners surely learned a lot about stent management and some of the dynamics of a ketchup bottle, which I never thought we would address on one of these podcasts. So thank you for your expertise and time. Yeah, thank you. You can use a a mayonnaise uh, bottle too. So don't worry, it's the same concept. There we go. We're just racking up sponsors. I appreciate it. (laughs) All right. Take care, my friend. Take care, Pepe. Bye-bye.